And we're starting in verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will now be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, James. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. And today we are starting a new series that we're going to be in all summer which we are calling Our Origin Story, Journeying Through the Book of Acts. And in this series, we're going to be looking back of the birth of what we now call the church and how God showed up in the first century for those who were continuing in the way of Jesus. In an age where we encounter all sorts of stories, like Ashley shared this morning, of church hurt and leadership and abuse, I still believe that if the church is faithful to what it is called to be, that it's still the best hope for the world. Today is Ascension Sunday. Uh, this is a moment in the church calendar where we step out of Easter tide, which was our 40-day period of feasting and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, and we step into what is known on the church calendar as ordinary time. Now, ordinary time doesn't mean routine or uneventful, but rather the sequence of ordinate Sundays. So, for example, this is the sixth Sunday after Easter. And ordinary time takes up most of the church calendar. And it represents this ongoing work of Christ in the world um, through us, even between his big moments on the calendar. And even in the scriptures, when Christ was not physically with his people, he was, through the Spirit, continuing to do great things in the world. And so it's fitting that as we step into ordinary time, we're going to be looking back on the work of Christ and the way that he continued his work through the church. Now, what we just listened to that James just read was the account of the ascension. And the ascension of Christ is an incredibly weird and incredibly important story in our history. Uh, Timothy Keller, a man whose writings and preaching have deeply impacted me um, in my formation as a pastor and a preacher, he went to be home with Jesus on Friday. Um, He passed away at the age of 72. And he said that if Pentecost, you know, when the Holy Spirit came upon the 12 and the flames and all that stuff, he said if that was the the explosion of the church, then the ascension is the detonator. For reasons that are difficult for us to understand, Jesus ascended to be with the Father in order that the church could be indwelled with the Holy Spirit and the power of God. 
But why did it have to be this way? <laughs> Is it just me, or do any of you ever wonder, why couldn't Jesus have just stuck around and like made things easier for us, made things clearer for us, right? During the presidential election, how many Americans write in Jesus Christ as their candidate for president, right? Because that seems to make sense to us, right? If Jesus could just lead us the way that we want him to, life would be a lot easier, right? I've recently been grieving this in my own heart. I've sometimes just, I really wish that Jesus were here with me physically. Like, why can't you be right here, right here with me? Why can't I sit in front of you and have coffee with you? Why can't you be my pastor, Jesus, right? Sometimes it's hard to believe the words that he said before he left, right? In John 16, he said, it's better that I go. It's better that I go, that I can send you the Spirit. I've been thinking a lot about things like elections, political leadership, church leadership. It's one of the most tension-filled and explosive topics in our culture right now, right? And when it comes to church leaders and church hurt and political leadership, things tend to ramp up around election season, right? Just watch. In 2024, these conversations are going to get more and more heated. And the problem is that we want someone in the position of leadership who understands us, right? If I have conservative political convictions and values, I want somebody in office who has shared those political convictions and values and my experiences. I want someone making the decisions who knows what it's like to be me because I know that they understand my day-to-day issues. If I'm in an urban context, I want somebody in leadership over me who understands the urban context, who knows that when they make decisions about my life, how it's going to impact me in my context, right? Is this fair? We want leaders who share our experiences, and then we're afraid if we get leaders who don't, that they're going to make decisions that negatively impact me, and they won't even know why. And even when we get the right people that we want in leadership, eventually their approval rating drops, right? Because those human beings fail us, and the cycle of frustration continues. The the problem is that we tend to think of ourselves as victims of our leaders, We're frustrated by the lack of control that we have to make them understand what it's like to be me. But friends, here's the thing. We worship a God who is above the leaders of this world, who took it upon himself to become one of us, to live as we live, to see as we see, to feel as we feel. We have a God who became a human being, who set aside godly power and glory, and then mysteriously, he held on to this humanity when he went back to glory. So that means that the one who sits on the throne in glory and power and authority is not just a being far away, he's a human. He's our friend He's our teacher. He's a man, fully human, who wore our flesh and blood. That who, that is who is on the throne. So today we're going to unpack this story to examine how and why Jesus left. We're going to talk about uh, uh, where Jesus is right now and why that's important. And we're going to learn a little bit of theology. I believe in you. Um, If I can get it, you can get it. We're going to get through it together. And we're going to talk about what this means, what this event means in regards to how we deal with leadership in this world and how we move from thinking of ourselves as victims of our leaders and move towards being agents of our king, because there's a difference. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bathe me in humility. Lord, I pray that you would bathe us in humility, that as we approach these 
controversial and sometimes difficult things to talk about, that we would receive your truth and your grace. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's get into the text a little bit, right? The book of Acts is basically part two of the gospel according to Luke. It was written as a continuation of Luke's gospel. Luke himself was one of the disciples uh, that traveled with Jesus and was also a close companion of Paul the Apostle. You might have heard of him. Now, Luke addresses this letter to someone named Theophilus. Now, there's a lively debate about who Theophilus is. It's possible that Theophilus was um, the name of the benefactor of Luke's work. These scrolls were expensive to kind of set out to write one of these things, and so they would often need sponsors, right? Today's gospel is brought to you by BetterHelp. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. It was that kind of thing. Um, I can tell those of you who laughed, watch YouTube like me. Um, so Luke could be doing what was common for the, the all works back then, and that was kind of acknowledging your benefactor at the beginning of the letter. There's also a train of thought which identifies Theophilus as a pseudonym for all followers of Jesus, because the word Theophilus literally means friend of God or lover of God. So when Luke writes to Theophilus, the theory is that he's actually addressing anyone who follows in the way of Jesus. It could be one of these things. It could be both. It could be that Theophilus started out as a real benefactor and then became a pseudonym or a moniker for the people of the way. Either way, it doesn't really impact our text very much. The scriptures are full of all kinds of works that were written to other people, not to us, but they were written for us. And that's why we study them. And the full title of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And the idea is that this is a continuation of the gospel of Jesus continuing through us, who lives and moves and acts through his followers via the Holy Spirit. And I believe the reader is meant to write themselves into the end of Acts as we continue in this gospel of the church. Now, I want us to place ourselves in the shoes of the disciples during this moment of the ascension. They've been following around this man named Jesus for years now, who's fulfilled many roles in their lives, right? He's been recognized as their teacher. They've acknowledged him as their Lord. At this point, they've understood that he's the long-awaited Messiah, right? The Messiah. There's, there's this prophecy in the Old Testament that there would be this hero that would one day come and make peace on the earth. And this incredible man has just done the ultimate miracle, Jesus. He's defeated death itself. He was crucified by the most powerful emperor, in the most humiliating and horrible way, and it didn't work. It didn't stick. Jesus rose from the grave. And now the disciples are placing all of their hope on him, wouldn't you? <laughs> they know, okay, he's the Messiah. And they've read the prophecies like the one in Isaiah that says the government will be on his shoulders. Okay, so he's going to rule the world's governments. Great. So Jesus, now that you've made your point, you came back from the dead, you're invincible. Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you now going to kick out Rome? Is it, are we ready now? Even after all their time with Jesus, they've come a long way in understanding who he is and what he was here to do, but they have yet to fully grasp the scope of his plan. It's bigger than what they think. They want Jesus to deal with Caesar. Makes sense. Caesar's a messed up dude. They have a leadership issue. They're being oppressed by a government who does not understand them. So they want Jesus to supplant Caesar. You see, the Israelites, they had all these leaders in their culture, right? They had uh, each, each kind of leader held a different kind of authority. So you had uh, the priesthood. These were the intermediaries between the people and God. They facilitated the 
worship of Yahweh through sacrifices. Then you had the prophets. These were people that spoke on behalf of God, offering the people of God correction and guidance. And then there were the kings who ruled over the nation in a way that was governmental and military. And the Israelites were waiting for a Messiah who was not only going to be a priest, uh, who was not only going to be a king, but he was going to be both. They were awaiting a royal priest who would rule directly from the authority of God. The Messiah was thought to be someone who would act as an intermediary between God and his people and also rule as his king. They would combine offices. And you see people in Jesus' ministry that are trying to pin him down, right? They say, some people think that you are Elijah. Some people say that you are Moses, reincarnate. Some people say that you're a prophet. And then Peter, he eventually says, like, well, I think you're the Messiah, right? And they're more on the money with this one. But there was this big revelation, this big truth of who Jesus was that maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. It's actually debated when the disciples understood the true nature of Jesus. But what they didn't fully grasp in their hearts, even if they got it in their minds, was that this Jesus, who is the Messiah, not just a prophet who speaks on behalf of God, not just the priest who advocates on behalf of the people, not just the king of the Jews, not just the royal priest, but this man was God himself. It's like the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss, right? Like the person who's been next to you on the assembly line. Have you guys heard of Undercover Boss? You know this show? Basically, the CEO goes in undercover and pretends to be one of the employees to understand what he's putting his company through, right? Or her company through. And this person that we've been working alongside that's been with us on the assembly line, they've had some really good ideas about streamlining productivity. Like, oh, that's a good idea. And we find out that it's the CEO. The disciples wanted him to ascend to the throne of Rome and usurp the emperor, but Jesus was going higher. He was ascending to the throne of heaven because he had usurped death itself. You see, Jesus describes himself more than anything else in the scriptures. He says that he is the son of man. And this is actually a direct reference to a vision given to Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, we'll have it on the screen. He writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, we'll stop here for a second. This is very strange, because the clouds of heaven was an image that was associated only with the glory and the presence of Yahweh. Only creator God gets this kind of treatment. But then coming on the clouds of heaven is someone who looks human. Someone who looks like the son of man. Continuing, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when we hear that Jesus was lifted up into the clouds, this would have been really commonly understood imagery by the disciples of this time associated with the glory of God himself. The Son of Man approaches the throne. He's given all authority, given all uh, over all of heaven and earth. This is a picture of the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, ascending to this picture. So when we look at the translation in Acts, we see the word epairo, which means lifted up. This is the most accurate way to translate this word. Whatever happened here, it, I don't think it was about Jesus flying physically. Like, I don't think we are meant to imagine the worship of our Lord and astronaut, Jesus Christ. I don't think that Jesus is just floating in space somewhere. Although if he wanted to, I would have no problem with that. But this being lifted up was more about him being lifted up 
theologically. We see this imagery in the Old Testament of high places, uh, these meetings are these meeting spaces between heaven and earth. Eden is depicted in Ezekiel 28 as being on a mountain. The temple was built on a mountain. Psalms that people would sing as they go to worship in the temple were called Psalms of Ascent. Height was this geographical reality that used, uh, they used as a metaphor to represent otherworldly realms. So when Jesus gives his teaching what the kingdom of heaven is, where does he do it from? The Mount of Olives. So the priesthood, they facilitated these spaces, right, where heaven and earth would meet, these high spaces where they would overlap. And there were these little pockets of Eden. That's what they were meant to represent. The tabernacle, the temple, they were decorated with all kinds of shrubbery and fruit trees to hearken imagery back to the Garden of Eden. So Jesus steps in as this ultimate high priest. He's the bridge between heaven and earth, but he's also the ruler of heaven and earth. And he restores this mandate of the priesthood of Eden that Jesus referred to, Jesus referred to um, uh, by Paul as the second Adam. And there's this quote from this article. I was reading about this, and they say, At the top of the mountain, united fully with God and integrated with his will, Adam and Eve received God's creative word and his good life. And as representatives, they were tasked to go down from Eden and extend God's word and life to the whole creation. So listen, the ascension of heaven... This, sorry, the ascension of Jesus establishes a doorway, not only of Christ's access to heaven, but heaven's access to earth. Do we see what's happening here? Where once this doorway was only open during these specific uh, rituals and, and, and acts of worship and sacrifices put on by the priest, Jesus, the high priest, who is the priest and the sacrifice himself, the Lamb of God, he opens that doorway between heaven and earth, and then he jams it open. We see in Matthew, right, when Jesus was, was crucified, that in the temple, the barrier, the curtain that was between the Holy of Holies, God's presence, and the people, that at the moment of his death, the moment that he was the sacrifice, that he was the priest, it ripped that curtain in two. And now the Spirit of God, the presence of God, was going to be released. And that the mandate of Eden for us to represent God's interests in the world and spread his goodness all over the earth, that was about to take place. So I want you to listen to this and write this down. The ascension of Christ enables the presence of God to go from one place in Jesus to all places in us. The ascension of Christ enables the presence of God to go from one place in Jesus to all places in us. And this ascension, friends, deals with our leadership problem. It establishes that Christ is divine, that the Messiah, the person who had walked alongside us and suffered with us, is God himself. We are meant to go from Acts 1, where we're at right now, Jesus being lifted up into the clouds and directly into Daniel 7 with him at the throne and the clouds surrounding him and him receiving worship. It's like Star Wars. We get the prequels later, right? Thank you for the two of you that got that joke. So Jesus has taken his place as the Lord of all creation. That means that our greatest desire for leadership, that problem has been fulfilled. The one in charge of us, the leader running the show, is someone who gets us. He's someone who understands what it's like to be us. And he sacrificed everything in order to do that. 
In Isaiah 52, we read about the son of suffering this morning in our worship songs. It says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, lifted up, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. In a confounding, mysterious act of love, we find that the suffering servant is also the king. The suffering man who suffered with us, he's ascended to the throne. And listen, I want Jesus to be right here. Like, I want him tangible. I want him physically with me. But what Jesus gives his followers is more than his physical presence beside them. He gives them his presence and authority in them and through them. Can I be honest with you? I used to read this story, and I used to, being all honest, I saw this exchange as a bit of a downgrade. Like we went from having flesh and blood Jesus to the spirit in us. Wouldn't that be crazy if a bolt of lightning just hit me right now? Um, Listen, I remember reading, Jesus, I want you to be real the way that my parents are real to me, the way that my friends are real to me. I want to ask you questions that you can literally answer in real time. I want your actual arms around me. I want Jesus. But friends, what happened on Ascension Sunday, or sorry, Ascension Thursday, was not a downgrade of relationship. We didn't get the bum end of the deal being born in 20-whatever or 19-whatever. The Holy Spirit is not second fiddle to Jesus. No, if anything, this was an evolution of relationship. You see, the Holy Spirit God's presence and power is now living in us. This is the kind of relationship that speaks from authority. Now I don't just go out to dinner with the boss and he picks up the check at the end of the night. No, now I've got the company credit card. Do we see? I'm making decisions based on his authority in me. I'm an ambassador of the king enacting his will on the earth. Now listen, this does not mean that I'm God. It's a big distinction. He's still the one that, got author- that has authority, right? He's the one that got authority. Um, what he says goes. But through the Spirit, I have the ability to be so close to God that we are in sync. That he's able to transform me from the inside out with his love. That I become the kind of person with whom he can trust with his kingdom. I become the kind of person who gets to fulfill that mandate of Eden. And we get to learn how to be in sync, how to be in tune, how to be in step. So much so that when he speaks, I speak. When it's him moving, I'm moving. And this is the heart of discipleship, right? Discipleship means that I'm constantly trying to replace myself. I'm constantly trying to work myself out of the job. And Jesus was discipling His disciples, go figure, right? That's what he was doing. So with this understanding, I can embrace the truth that I am not a victim of leadership. I'm an agent of the king. Let me clarify something. He wasn't training us to replace him as God. He was training us to enact God's will on the earth. Hear what I'm saying accurately. This is what Jesus is doing for us. And then we get, going back to the text, we see these men in white standing there. And I think that we're meant to recognize these men standing there as the same men that are in Luke at the end, in part one of this story, where after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, they're standing in the tomb, and they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead, right? And now they stand there amidst another kind of emptiness. Jesus has gone again. 
and he challenges them, and he says, why are you standing here? Don't just stand around waiting for Jesus to get back. Trust me, you'll know it when he does. Because honestly, for them, it would have been easier in an, intimate, an immediate way. It would have been easier for Jesus to just go be the emperor. But in that world, they would have been robbed of their Eden mandates to represent God on the earth, to have dominion over the earth on behalf of God, and to multiply his goodness in the world. We often want Jesus to come and be the president, right? We want physical solutions to our world. But the Lord has placed his spirit in us to represent his kingdom on the earth. And his kingdom has never been one that spreads via political power. In fact, Christianity has always been at its best when its power is subversive, when its influence is countercultural against the powers that be. And listen, there are a lot of problems in the world. Clearly, a lot. And I think these problems are meant to cause us grief and sadness. But Jesus is rarely going to fix these problems the way that we want him to fix them. If something breaks your heart, if there's something you know that grieves the heart of God, stop waiting around for some leader to do something about it. Jesus has done something about it. He sent you. Don't stand staring at the sky waiting for Jesus to come back. God sent himself as the Holy Spirit alive in you. Jesus' ultimate act of sacrificial love has saved the world already, but you are his plan to continue healing it. Jesus has already saved the world, but you are his plan to continue healing it. But it can be so easy to live in fear, can't it? To get a rise when you look at what's happening in the world. There's so many things out of our control the economy seems like it's dangling off a cliff. There's political turmoil. There's war. There's disease. There's injustice. There's so much that threatens our peace. And the questions that the disciples ask, I often find myself asking, okay, is it time? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to fix this world yet? And we get frustrated when our leaders just don't seem to get it. And we want them to get it, right? But here's the thing. All the leaders of this world's governments, they're middle management. Our Jesus is the founder, CEO, CFO, and chief RD officer. That's who Jesus is. And yeah, the manager might be wilding out and doing all kinds of acting crazy, but my best friend's the CEO, and he gave me special orders. There's a peace in that. That's the kind of peace the disciples get. They get to humbly and confidently walk through their lives with the marching orders from the king himself, from the king of the universe, the one who sits glorified at the right hand of the Father in the cloud of glory in heaven. That's my best friend. I know that guy. He's my rabbi. He's given me the company credit card. So who cares what Caesar says? Who cares if he threatens me with even death? Who cares? The middle management can fire me, but the CEO will just hire me back. This is what the resurrection did. <laughs> Literally, world's worst weapons can be thrown right at us and seem to work. But because of what Christ has done, we now get to reign with him forever. We get so wrapped up in getting the right leader in office, right? I want, I'm so sick of the leadership. I want this person. 
And sure, that would be great. That would be great if we finally got the leader that fixed all of our problems the way that all of us want them to. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be great, but it's not the mission. It's not the mission. We sometimes get so spun out in our anxiety about who's in control over our lives, and it makes sense. It's easy to feel that way when you feel powerless. But rather than cower under the tyranny of the middle manager, we walk confidently with the unshakable peace that we have in Jesus because we know that we're doing his work. The manager is going to have to answer to the CEO. So let the CEO worry about that. It's not my job to hire or fire the middle management. I've got my orders. So think about it. If all of your worst fears in the world were to come true, Imagine, worst case scenario, here in Newburgh, in the United States, worst case scenario, what, what, what is the thing? Is it, is it communism? Is it, is it a, another Great Depression? Is it, is it uh, persecution? Is it nuclear war? Is it a zombie apocalypse? Is it an alien invasion? I usually worried about those last two more than anything. <laughs> Honestly, what scenario? Any scenario you, you can think of, think of it. Guess what? Yes. That's horrible. But if that horrible thing, if all the horrible things that you're imagining came to pass, your mission on the earth would not change. Wouldn't change. Jesus is still seated in glory, in all authority over the heavens and the earth, and he's still your best friend, and he still has work for you to do. Now, this may get some of you angry, but I don't say this to get a rise out of you. I say this to speak peace to you. I really don't think that we need to live in fear. And I don't think we need to live in fear of the end times. <laughs> if you are devoted to Jesus, if you are grafted into the vine, if you trust him as your shepherd, if you really do believe that when you're with him, you lack nothing, you are not going to walk blindly into the schemes of the enemy. <laughs> you aren't going to wake up one day and realize that when you applied for that GPS tracker that you accidentally got the mark of the beast or something. That's not going to happen. You laugh, but we live in fear. What if they get me? They can't get you. <laughs> if you're in Jesus, they cannot touch you. Stick close to him. Don't worry about what's coming out there one day. Don't stand staring at the sky waiting for the end. Be attentive to what God has put right in front of you. Open your eyes and be present to what God has set before you. Sometimes we stand staring at the sky, waiting for him to come and fix our problems. Meanwhile, he wants to entrust us and empower us to go and heal the world ourselves. Look, when it comes to end time stuff, biblical nerdiness is great, but the scriptures do not serve us well. The way that we interpret the scriptures does not serve us well if all it gives us is fear and paranoia and isolation. That's not what the word of God is meant to do for you. It's meant to give you peace and boldness and confidence as you walk in the power of God. So how do we respond with authority and leadership and policy? How do we respond to these issues? Well, the first way we can respond is we can allow fear to control our peace. We can allow fear to control our peace. Our culture tells us that we need to live and die based on what the election, what the outcomes are, right? It's anxious living. How many times do we hear people say, like, oh, if so-and-so wins the election, I'm moving to Canada, right? How many of you ever heard someone say, like, say something like that? It's anxious. We're, we're being tossed and driven by every change of our political system. That's not how we're meant to live. Our peace is meant to be unshakable. 
throughout any situation, immovable in our hope. The second option is we could live with our heads in the sand and we can allow fear to keep us complacent. We allow fear to keep us from moving into the world at all. We're intimidated by evil or we feel like we're not concerned with it. And this is a posture which refuses to move against injustice and brokenness in our world. It refuses to take up the authority given to us by the Lord of heaven. And this is living in naivete, right? Or spiritual numbness. Some people call it spiritual bypassing. We aren't meant to, to, for our world's realities to entrap us in fear, but we also are not meant to ignore them, right? So there's a third way, and that is we allow the love of God to move in and through us. We allow the love of God to move in and through us. Jesus cares about justice. And as we embody the kingdom, we do everything we can to embody Christ's values, but we are not shocked or shaken when the government crucifies us. Every world leader, every king, president, mayor, parent, board, director, everyone is middle management. And it would be great if middle management could get it together. It would be great. But that's not our concern. We contend for the kingdom. But we don't lose hope when our leaders fail us. Because they will. I will. Leaders fail. So when they do, are we shaken to our core? Or do we trust in Jesus? That he's the one who sits on the throne in all authority. Because sometimes we can take God's plans and we try to make improvements upon them (laughs) or shift them a little bit. Christian morality has had a massive impact on the laws that govern our nation today. But here's the thing. Our nation is always going to try to build the kingdom without the king. That's what nations do. Our citizenship is higher. We have heavenly passports. You can't get those through the United Nations. You can only get those through the Holy Spirit. And we are not victims of our environment, even if we are victims of our environment. We're not. Even if we get abused and fired by middle management, we're still best friends with the CEO, and he's going to make it right. So there is victory even in our victimhood. I can agree or disagree with a law or a leader or a method with a policy, but are we living in fear of the leaders who enact those things, or am I walking in love? Am I walking with the confidence and authority as an ambassador of the God of the universe? Friends, what would it look like to walk through our lives, to walk through election seasons, to walk through our frustrations with our leaders, carrying this profound awareness that someone who gets us better than we could ever get ourselves is ruling the universe? What would it look like? We may think of ourselves as citizens of the United States, and sure, that's fine. But the one I serve is the king above galaxies. The king I serve has armies of heavenly creatures. The king I serve has power over death itself. What would it look like to walk through life with this unshakable peace born out of God's overwhelming love? I would like to invite you the next time that you find yourself feeling anxious about things, being decided for you by people who don't understand you, the next time you feel afraid of what the failure of our leaders may unleash upon us, the next time you're overwhelmed with the frustration that things that just break your heart aren't getting better, the next time you're feeling spun out and feel that political tirade rising up inside of you, ask God for peace. 
Ask him to remind you of his sovereignty. He's the one on the throne. Ask God how he wants you to step into the middle of it. Because if it's born out of the spirit that lives within you, it won't keep you locked in fear. It'll move you out of love. The next time you stand looking at the sky, shaking your fists and saying, where are you, God? Why can't you do something about all of this? Don't you care? The next time you find yourself doing that, remember, he loved the world so much that he left glory. He put on our flesh and blood. And he died for this world. And that act of love was so powerful, was so complete, that he saved us. He saved us from the hell of our own making. And now he lives in us. Through the Spirit, he wants to empower us to continue to heal the world in his name. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. Friends, I've said some things today. And some of you might really be wrestling, and I want to acknowledge that. And here's the thing, too. I hope that we get many, many years together with me as your pastor. And I hope to God that you do not agree with anything I say. Please. (laughs) We don't need that. Here's what I do hope. I hope that even when I say something that frustrates you, that we wrestle together, that we stay together as a family, and that we work it out. My hope for us is that when we come close to Jesus, is that he gives us peace, not fear. That when we move in his love, we get closer to him, and we get closer to one another even when we don't agree. That somehow I'm able to love you who votes differently than I do. Somehow you're able to love me when I think differently than you do. Somehow we're able to love one another even when our theologies depart in certain areas. That's what I want for us. Peace. Not peacekeeping, not status quo, peacemaking, which is hard work, which requires reconciliation, which requires humility, which requires listening. So we're going to spend three minutes right now listening. Because I know for me, it's always helpful when I listen, but I have to listen to God first. Because I want to listen to myself. Because I I have really good opinions. And I'm right, usually. But Jesus is more right most of the time. All the time. (laughs) Even when I don't want to admit it. So I want you to get comfortable. And we're going to take three minutes And I just want you to invite the voice of God to speak to you now. Was there something in this message, something in this text that he wanted you to work on today? Something that he wants to take you to take with you and to move into your life. Jesus, we thank you for your word and we pray that in you and through you we would have peace because of your love. We pray that we would recognize your glory and your majesty on the throne and that we would understand what it is to be empowered as agents of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for saving the world, and we ask that through us, you would continue to heal it. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.